For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Dr. Jasmine Chatwall, the Chief Medical Officer at Sierra Tucson, about improving the way we talk with loved ones who express thoughts about suicide. Learn about the Atascosa Highlands and a multimedia storytelling project led by two Tucsonans who hope to raise awareness and appreciation for this unique region. And Arizona Daily Star Street Smarts columnist David Layton looks into why one local town's name has been causing confusion since the 1850s. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The first story on this week's show is a conversation about suicide with a mental health professional and survivor who advocates for better communication about mental health and suicide prevention. Nothing graphic will be discussed, but we understand this topic is not appropriate for all listeners. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and while the problem persists, the conversation has been evolving. Joining me now is Dr. Jasmine Chatwall, a psychiatrist serving as chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson. Dr. Chotwal is also a survivor of suicide. Now that is a designation that can also be applied to anyone who has lost a loved one because they made that fatal choice. I don't hide it. I, I am somebody who's fairly open about that experience because I feel like that's part of reducing the stigma of suicide. Um, I lost my dad to suicide when I was 22. Um, and so that has definitely shaped how I show up in my uh, personal and professional life. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. It must have been devastating. A person we had on the show just recently offered the thought that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And although solution might not be the right word there, I think we understand what they were trying to say. When your father made his decision Do you feel like it could have been different if he had waited longer, six months, a year? Would his life have been in a better place, perhaps? Definitely. I think, um, you know, again, one of the things that I will choose to comment on in the statement you made um, is that we talked about it being a decision. I'm not really certain in the research that I've seen or in my personal experience of having known Uh, people who've thought about suicide or completed suicide, that it really is a well-thought-out decision. It's oftentimes a very impulsive and sudden decision that's made. Um, There is some research on people who have attempted and then survived that attempt, and oftentimes even they will share that it was something that was decided in that very second when the attempt happened. So even though there can be some preparatory behaviors, it really is one of those things that happens very suddenly, and it is a permanent act that then changes the trajectory of many people's lives, not only the person who obviously ended their life. Partly even the National Institutes of Mental Health and part of us as clinicians who are trying to reduce stigma about suicide are trying to shift our narrative about it being a decision or a volitional act. It very much is something that's driven 
by the despair the person may be feeling in the moment or sometimes the despair that the mental health condition that they're dealing with makes them experience. Just a choice made when things are darkest and one has a hard time seeing the light on the horizon. I interviewed Kevin Hines, who's an author and filmmaker and motivational speaker. He's a suicide survivor. He chose to end his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And when he survived, the Coast Guard was bringing him in. And so they told the hospital about his condition. They don't have too many jumpers who survived the fall. And there was a nurse who was ready to receive Kevin when he got there. And she told him later, I knew it was you and I knew you were my patient because as soon as they opened the ambulance doors, I could hear you saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I asked him if he remembered that and he did. And he said that his regret began the instant that he left the bridge. What can you tell me about regret and how suicide survivors have a different aspect on the experience once they are survivors? Most of the training that we do around suicide risk assessment when we see individuals who've attempted, um, that's a thing that all of us as clinicians really try to assess, is their regret. And if there is regret, that is really a big protective factor for that person. However, there are a small proportion of people who after attempting, if they're not able to complete suicide, may say that they do not regret it and they are angry at the people who may have stopped them or saved them or found them because even at that point, they want to continue with ending their life. And that to me speaks to the level of despair, the level of distress they may be in, the amount of suffering that they're going through. Uh, We know neurobiologically in your brain makes you see the world as being glass half empty. And so the fact that you have such a negative bias with a condition like that is why treating depression is so important and why depression does get linked with suicide is because even if you can practically think about all the amazing things that are there in your life, you're just not able to actually enjoy those. And your brain reward circuits are not functioning at their optimum. So you're not really being able to feel the pleasure of life. Um, And so I think when we're talking about an approach to preventing suicide, um, it obviously is treating the conditions that are diagnosed, which we know will reduce risk. And then there's the element of helping a person proactively see the positive things in their life. Uh, So sometimes what we do is a intervention, which we call a suicide safety plan. So if you know that somebody's struggling with thoughts of suicide, you actually have them write out a one-page safety plan which makes them think through what type of thoughts come up for them before they go to thoughts of suicide. What are some things they can do on their own to distract themselves, take their mind off those thoughts? Who are people they can reach out to for for support? And then finally, crises or helpline numbers to reach out to if, if all those steps have been taken and they're still continuing to struggle. Suicide is the 12th leading cause of death in our country, and it is currently the second leading cause for young people. And these are young people who have their entire life ahead of them. And, you know, most of your listeners and you might also know somebody who has died by suicide really early in their life as a young person. And that stains the experience of their family forever. Um, That's just something that is very, very hard to deal with. And different people do different things like maybe putting their energy towards advocacy, 
trying to make sure that other people don't have to deal with the loss that they're dealing with. Um, and maybe that's partly what I'm doing in my life here. I feel like one of the major issues you must run into is that depression is such a private condition. When I'm dealing with a bout of depression, I don't find advice helpful. There's hardly anything anyone can say to me that's going to make me see out of that well of depression. Advice is not the way to go, right? We can't tell people how to feel. Right. It's actually one of the worst things to do is to say, hey, Mark, look at your life. Look at all these positive things and start counting down all the good things I see in your life. That's deeply invalidating of your experience. Our emotions are you know, like pain. We're the only ones who can feel it. Other people can imagine, but don't really know. Um, so I think along with validating that this is how a person feels, there is an important role all of us in the community play, not only mental health professionals, in being able to let that person borrow some of your hope. To say, I, I understand that I'm hearing from you, you're struggling so deeply. And I've seen that previously when this has happened with you, things have gotten better, we know things will change. And then being able to just provide support, love, and unconditional regard, no matter what you're going through. We did touch on some signs that may indicate that a loved one might be at risk for suicide. Can you tell us what a couple of the most important ones are? Uh, one of the biggest ones is a change in behavior. And with the behavior especially being um, towards being more socially isolated, not engaging as much, starting to talk about death or suicide is something that should be taken very, very seriously. So if out of the blue you hear your loved one starting to talk about death or suicide, that is not a topic to brush away. I would really request that everybody and anybody who hear a person talk about that engage with them around it. Um, more so to ask, you know, what are you thinking about since how long is this going on? Encouraging somebody to talk about those thoughts does not make them more real, does not increase the likelihood that the person will act on those thoughts. Oftentimes, that might be what they needed to start venting and talking about what's really driving that thought of suicide. Um, and oftentimes, um, I think the other piece can be the person talking about feeling like a burden that they don't really feel like they have purpose or meaning in their life. And I think we started our conversation to some degree talking about uh, me losing my dad. I lost him when I was 22. In India, I was finishing medical school. I was still in my last year. I wanted to come to the US to train. And suddenly, my brain would not work. Like I couldn't study. I couldn't pay attention to anything. There was so much psychosocial chaos. People did not really understand suicide, so there was a lot of speculation about what happened. And so just the amount of despair that I myself felt in that, um, sometimes I sit and think about it, and I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know how I survived that. I don't know how I'm here today, because it was such a dark period. And to know that there's so many people out there who struggle with that on a day-to-day -day basis, and just in our country, we lose about 130 people every day to suicide. That is a massive number. So the funny thing is my mother-in-law usually laughs 
um, because wherever we go, I just say hi to people and I interact with them. And she's like, gosh, you'll talk to anybody. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's partly the goal is to just connect with people. And if you can add one positive bit of energy to somebody's life, you never know what they were going through and what's happening to them. So I feel like whenever we're feeling okay, maybe it's our community prerogative to be kind. And Tucson is all about that. Be kind and connect. If you or someone you know needs help, get in touch with the Suicide and Crisis Hotline by calling or texting 988. In Tucson, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is available at 520-622-6000. And the Hope Incorporated Warm Line is 520-770-9909. There is no shame in attempting to save a life, especially your own. Thank you to Dr. Jasleen Chotwal, Chief Medical Officer at Sierra Tucson. The Coronado National Forest encompasses nearly 1.8 million acres in different parts of Arizona and New Mexico, providing countless opportunities to experience the full range of this region's natural habitats. Among them is the Atascosa Highlands. It's west of Nogales, Arizona, where some multi-talented Tucson residents have been conducting a visual storytelling project since 2017. Here's Tony Paniagua with the interview. Jack Dash and Luke Swenson, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Tony. Thanks so much for having us here. We'll begin with you, Jack. So what is Atascosa Borderlands? Where is it and why is it a special place for you? So Atascosa Borderlands is a multidisciplinary visual storytelling project that's focused on a small stretch of the Arizona-Sonora Borderlands just southwest of Tucson, Arizona. The project really looks at the history of humans' interaction with this landscape from really prehistoric times to the modern era and how different groups of people have perceived and influenced the landscape there along the border. I've heard, for example, that you can find the black bear and jaguar in this area. That's right. And this is one of the very few areas in North America where those animals are going to interact. Additionally, you have plant species that might typically be found in subalpine meadows in the Rockies uh, within a few feet of species that are tropical and typically grow in Central America. So you really have this ecological and cultural tide pool that is being disturbed by uh, fragmentation of the landscape. So what does Atascosa mean? It's uh, kind of a tricky word to translate from Spanish. It can mean very specifically a marsh or a bog or more broadly an obstruction or a space that is difficult to move through. And that in every way describes the Atascosa Highlands. They are an incredibly rugged collection of peaks and valleys. And this is one of the reasons that uh, people are forced to migrate through this area. One, it's incredibly difficult to police. Uh, and two, it's an incredibly difficult area to be found, but that also makes it a dangerous area. And in fact, it is the deadliest part of the Coronado National Forest for migrants who are moving through those spaces. And Luke, uh, can you tell us about when did you first hear about this region and why did you decide to get involved with Jack Dash on this project? 
Jack and I have actually known each other um, for going on 15 or 16 years. Uh, we were friends in high school growing up in neighboring towns of the Pacific Northwest along the Columbia River in southern Washington. Jack was working at Desert Survivors here in Tucson, Arizona, and um, started having conversations with people about how he could uh, learn more about the ecology of the Southwest. And that was when this idea of doing a botanical flora was first um, brought to his attention. And a co-worker of his started listing off a number of different mountain ranges that had never had what's referred to as a comprehensive botanical flora done. And one of those mountain ranges that, uh, that was uh, mentioned to Jack was called the Atascosa Mountains. Um, and that name Atascosa just really drew him in. Uh, and so that, that was around the time uh, going back to about 2017 when Jack and I first began working together. And Luke, what does this visual storytelling project look like? Over the uh, last seven years, Jack and I have made um, over 10,000 photographs on medium format color film. Uh, we've interviewed over 100 different community members across the Atascosa Highlands, oftentimes bringing people out into the field to make these recordings. And then we have uh, worked with um, these community members as well as uh, different historical archives here, both in Arizona, um, but also in California, uh, to digitally archive hundreds of historical photographs. And so this visual storytelling website um, through which Atascosa Borderlands is being released brings together hundreds of these uh, original photographs along with historical images and documents. Each of the chapters of our storytelling website has a, a 15 to 20 minute audio piece that weaves together a series of oral history interviews um, that are brought together with ambient field recordings and original instrumentation by two of our fellow collaborators, Patricio Coronado and Gus Tomizuka of the Bi-National Audio Collective Transitory Tapes. Yes, I see you worked with, among others, ecologists, cattle ranchers, hunters, ex-Border Patrol agents. Why was it important uh, for you guys, both of you, uh, collectively, to try to reach out to as many different sectors as possible? In a lot of the media coverage that you see about the border, stories can often be fairly shallow or they might take one particular angle. And often they're from the perspective of a journalist or you know an influencer that's coming to this space from somewhere else and really offering their own take. It quickly became important for us to really center the voices of the people that are most affected by these issues. And we figured that ultimately, if we really want this project to reach a broad audience and to truly cross political and ideological boundaries, then we really wanted to center the voices of a diverse array of people. And ultimately, it's not our goal to convince people of one perspective or the other, but to lay out the perspectives of people that are affected by changes taking place in the Atascosa borderlands and allow them to draw their own conclusions. And Luke, your project is coming out in different chapters. Can you tell us about the, the latest, please? Yeah, so the uh, project is being released as a series of eight different chapters. Um, and chapter two, which just came out on Tuesday, January 9th, um, is focused on uh, what is referred to as the Battle of Bear Valley, which is the, the last conflict um, 
that is a part of what's referred to as the American Indian Wars. I mean, this battle actually took place in the Atascosa Highlands um, near a small encampment uh, called Bear Valley. That skirmish, that battle uh, was between a group of Yaqui freedom fighters who were traveling uh, from southern Arizona to uh, northern Mexico to defend their communities from the Mexican federal government. And that group of Yaqui freedom fighters ran into a group of 10th Cavalry Buffalo soldiers um, who, you know, the 10th Cavalry Buffalo soldiers was made up of black and African-American enlisted men. Uh, So this really interesting um, historical event that took place, but that not very many people um, here in the Southwest may be familiar with. if you aren't maybe, say, a part of the Pasquayaki community uh, for which this battle is a, a very important historical event. Jack, what are the biggest challenges to this region? First and foremost, it's important that people that are interested in sharing this history go into these communities and speak with people that maybe don't have access to you know, larger media or academic networks where their stories can be shared. Additionally, you know, as with all of Southern Arizona and the world, this area is experiencing the effects of climate change and habitat fragmentation. And in many areas that takes the form of like urban development. In this area, habitat fragmentation largely is taking place in the form of border wall construction that's dividing this area, which ecologically is linked with Northern Mexico, uh, but politically is obviously very divided. And we think that's going to have profound effects going forward, both to the culture and ecology of this region by splitting human communities and biotic communities. Jack Dash, a naturalist and writer with Atascosa Borderlands, and Luke Swenson, a documentary photographer with the same project. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Tony. Jack and Luke are holding a presentation and panel discussion about Atascosa Borderlands next Thursday, January 18th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at Tohono Chul in northwest Tucson. The event is free and open to the public, but does require registration in advance. We'll have links for more information on our website. Look for the Spotlight page at azpm.org. It's writer David Layton's job to explore local history and unearth the facts behind local legends for his monthly Street Smarts column in the Arizona Daily Star. Next, Layton tells the history behind an unusual place name that people have been pronouncing in different ways for more than a century and a half. So this one actually dates back to the days when I was in high school. Uh, Sometimes I'd go down to Nogales with friends to do a little partying, and I'd always pass by the sign that would read Saurita. And I'd always ask my friends, many of them who are native Spanish speakers, what is a Saurita? And I usually hear, I don't know, or that doesn't mean anything. But if it was Saurito with an O, it would mean little Saworo. Hmm. So I've always been curious since the days of high school of where that name came from. So what's the first step in this journey? How do we understand the naming of this place? The earliest known knowledge of it dates back to uh, about 1820. Uh, You have the brothers Tomas and Ignacio Ortiz. Um, They actually requested or petitioned the governor of Sonora and Sinaloa, which was one state 
at that point, uh, rather than two separate states of Mexico. Uh, they petitioned for a land grant of four sitios, uh, which is more than 27 square miles, of land around La Canoa, what was called La Canoa. Now, this is 1820. If you know your history, you'll know this is a year before Mexico won its independence from Spain and was then no longer part of the Spanish Empire. So it's uh, a bad time to put in uh, government paperwork. Yeah, there was a lot of things going on at that point, so it wasn't, uh, wasn't the best time to petition for this. So how long did it take for them to get an affirmative answer? Uh, they had to go through the process of having it surveyed and appraised and then auctioned uh, by the, at this point, Ignacio Elias Gonzalez, who was commander of the two-back military posts for Spain. They actually didn't get the land grant paperwork until 1849. So like 28, 29 years later. Yep. All the havoc of Mexico winning its independence from Spain. When they first appraised the San Ignacio de la Canoa land grant, describes a vast domain that stretched from Tubac to the south to El Saguarito, with a G instead of an H and an O instead of A, where there exists a plant of this tree, which remains as a landmark to the north. <laughs> this tree. It's kind of funny, the words and phrasing like they used to put back in the 1800s. But that's actually how they described it, actually mention El Saurito. It was a kind of a landmark where people knew. Uh, back in the 1800s, you pretty much only had two cities in what became Arizona. Uh, you had Tubac and Tucson. And the Saurito was essentially a saguaro, kind of an odd-shaped saguaro that was normally used as a landmark. Uh -huh. uh, so if you were traveling from Tubac to Tucson and you saw El Saurito, you knew you were X amount of miles or kilometers from Tucson. And the same thing <laughs> from going from Tucson to Tubac, you kind of knew if you hit this odd little-shaped saguaro known as El Saurito, that you were X amount of kilometers or miles from the other city. Well, things may have changed in the terrain in the last hundred or so years, but I think about how precarious it would be to base your expedition's lives on spotting the right saguaro. But if we jump ahead in time a little bit, you've got an account from John Spring, somebody who was stationed at Camp Lowell at the time, who says, at nightfall, we stopped at a place called Saharito, Little Giant Cactus, for an isolated plant of that kind growing near the place, which was an eating and watering station kept by someone named Benedict, about 25 miles south of Tucson. So uh, originally, a former Union soldier by the name of Cyrus S. Rice settled uh, next to the Saurito, and he kept a little ranch there for a little while before he sold it uh, to a Mr. Benedict. Uh, Mr. Benedict set up a stage stop where people traveling between Tucson and Tubac could stop, water their horses, feed their horses, uh, and I think they also could stay for the night as well. And that's what it became known as like a stage stop. Yeah, that's the same way that Las Vegas started. The uh, next step after Benedict was uh, an individual by the name of James K. Brown purchased the Saurito Ranch from Benedict, and he also not only set up a ranch, but at one point in 1882, he set up the post office in that area, and it was called the Saurito Post Office. 
by this time it's being spelled with an H and an O uh, rather than a G. Now that post office existed about four years. Um, his wife, Olive, was the assistant. He was the postmaster there. So I interviewed uh, his granddaughter, Olive Brand, and she told me their ranch was always known as the Saurito Ranch, not the Saurita Ranch. And she kind of laughed about it because the family never understood how it ended up to being Saurita when the ranch itself that the family had owned had always been Saurito. But in 1915, now... Mr. Brown sold off his ranch uh, in the, I think it was 1880s or 1890s, and not much happened in that area up until about 1915. People started moving in, companies started buying up the land, because the land was right next to the Santa Cruz River, which still had water in it. So at that point in 1915, they reopened or reestablished a post office, and it was named Saurita with an A. And since then, the post office in town has always been called Saurita with an A. And it's grown a lot from a watering hole into a whole community. To a fast-growing town. My guest, David Layton, writes the Street Smarts column that appears on the first Monday of every month in the Arizona Daily Star. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.